This is an epic verse. This verse is nuclear-powered. And I pray, and I've been praying that you would be deeply strengthened today uh, by this text. But we have to understand this verse in context. I think it was J.I. Packer who once said, a, a text without a context is a pretext. In other words, a, a verse without knowing its context is a pretext for all kinds of mischief. <laughs> you can turn a verse and mean anything you want it to mean. So we have to understand the context that this verse is in. And uh, it's interesting, living, in a, living a life of bold faith does not require that we close our eyes to the enormous and serious problems in the world or the real dangers that the church faces. We don't need to put on rose-colored glasses and pretend everything is okay in order to be optimistic, courageous Christians. In fact, one of the, one of the clear facts, I think, that becomes abundantly evident as you read through the New Testament is that the church is almost always under siege, almost always being attacked. And not only in the New Testament, but also history bears out that for 2,000 years this has been the case. The church, Christians, are under siege from persecutors and under siege from false teachers and false teaching. Interestingly, the the danger from persecutors, I think, has always been easier for, for Christians to handle because it's very straightforward, right? The guy with the gun pointing it at you is the bad guy. That makes sense, right? Um, the physical threat may be severe, but the enemy is clear. The danger of false teachers and false teaching was and is a greater threat because it's more stealth and the consequences are much more severe, even eternally severe. This is why healthy doctrine, healthy, sound, good doctrine is an absolute imperative. Paul has labored in 1 Timothy, so far in 2 Timothy, he's going to continue in 2 Timothy, he does so in Titus, these are oftentimes called the pastoral epistles. Paul labors in these epistles to to, to emphasize the point of sound, healthy doctrine as opposed to unsound, diseased teaching. So it's an imperative. Not only that, but resisting false teaching and false teachers is absolutely necessary as well. Unfortunately, in our day, and maybe it's always been this way, I don't know, but certainly in our day, it seems like many Christians don't have the stomach for such a duty. It requires discernment, it requires constant vigilance, it requires everything you listen, it requires taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. Constant discernment. Because what happens without the exercise of diligent discernment in the church? A flood of bizarre false teaching invades the church. Like the Vikings invading the villages of northern England in the 8th and 9th century, 9th and 10th centuries. I think there's a couple reasons why we don't, I'm saying we generally don't have the stomach to do what's necessary. And the first is I think we lack the clarity the New Testament gives us of the danger of false teaching. We need to see the danger as clearly 
as if you were one of those villagers and you see these Viking ships coming ashore. They're coming, right? Dangers on the way. But the second reason is that we assume that those who perpetrate false teaching will look and sound so obvious. The, the men on Saturday mornings are going through the book of Jude now, and we're, we, we went through verses 3 to 16 yesterday, and there's, a, there's toward the beginning of that passage, it says that, talking about false teachers, they, they crept in unnoticed, right? So we, we kind of assume that they're going to be so obvious, and yet they creep in unnoticed, so it's not obvious, we assume they'll look like a wolf. They'll have a pitchfork, right? Carry a pitchfork with them and maybe be wearing a, a necklace with a pentagram on it or something. It'll be so obvious to us that that's the bad guy. That's the guy you've got to be careful, be careful of. But remember the words of Christ. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Even Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants also are disguised as servants of righteousness. Well, in 2 Timothy, Paul shows Timothy and us how to think about false teaching and how to think about false teachers themselves. He does this in 1 Timothy as well, but we've seen this in 2 Timothy in the preceding verses that Reed covered last week, here's how Paul described the teaching. He said the teaching of, in particular, two men that he names, he described it as irreverent babble, irreverent, lacking reverence, an un ungodly kind of talk, and it was described as babble. I think the New American Standard says empty and worldly chatter. He describes, um, he describes the effects of it as people being led into ungodliness. So it's irreverent babble, and it, and it leads people to living irreverent lives. Lives that lack the fear of God. Any sense of a Godwardness. And he says that it's spreading like gangrene. Right, that, that's a... That's a, a metaphor that's helpful, right? Gangrene's like this in inflammation in part of your body. If you don't take care of it, guess what happens? It spreads and can destroy the internal organs. So this is serious. Notice how Paul plainly talks about the teachers themselves. This is from last week's passage, 14 to 18. He names them. He calls them out by name. He says it's Hymenaeus and Philetus. Two men you know. He boldly declares they have swerved from the faith. It's not just that they were a little bit off. I mean, of course, no one has exhaustive understanding of all the truth. So, so in one sense, we're all off, right? But we're growing. These men had, had swerved from the truth. He calls out the teaching itself. He says they were talking, their teaching is the resurrection has already happened. I think it's interesting, and this is, I think, instructive as well. I thought of this yesterday when we, at men's study, that these false teachers, Hymenaeus and Philetus, were known by the people. Maybe they were part of the church at one time, and they used Bible language, right? They talk about the resurrection. Well, we talk about the resurrection, 
But it was, it was, they were off. Perhaps it was a kind of over-realized eschatology, a, an, an emphasis or, or a, a teaching that described the resurrections already happened, not Christ's, but ours. And everything is ours now. Endless health, endless wealth, and so forth. It sounds like a teaching that is around today. And Paul is crystal clear about the effects of the teaching. I think this is so important. He says, this teaching is upsetting the faith of some. The word upsetting, at least in our common English vernacular, I don't think is the most helpful. We, you know, if I were to say I was upset about something, you wouldn't think that I was, that it was something that big of a deal. All right? Maybe I'd use an adjective like I'm extremely upset to communicate but this word means to overthrow, or means to turn over. In fact, the word is translated that way in John chapter 2, describing what Jesus did to the tables of the money changers. What did he do? He threw them over. He overturned them. The idea is that the faith of some was being overthrown. So this is the seriousness of False teaching. It overthrows the faith of those who buy into it. So this is what Paul was dealing with. This is what Timothy had to deal with. This is what the church has had to deal with for 2,000 years. And this is what we need to deal with, a constant assaults on the truth. Think about the stage of life that Paul was in when he wrote this. Paul was doubtless in his probably 60s. He was... I was going to say old. He's not, he wasn't old, all right? See, so if you're in your 60s, you're not old, but he was older, okay? He was not a young man anymore. He had labored for 30 years following Christ, planting churches, appointing elders and deacons in these churches, churches discipling, preaching, and teaching countless hours, seeking for the churches to be established well and built up. And near the end of his life, a church in Ephesus that he had labored long and hard at is being barraged by false teachers and false teaching. And yet, this is stunning to me, and yet, there is not a hint of doubt in Paul and not a hint of despair and unbelief, and discouragement. So Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, Timothy, you've got to study hard to make sure you're rightly handling the word of truth because there's false teachers, and they're spreading, their teaching is spreading like gangrene, and it's upsetting the faith of some. And then look at verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Side by side with Paul's understanding and concern about the real dangers of the church is his unconquerable confidence in God. And this is what we need. Brothers and sisters, this is what we need. 
We can have our eyes wide open to the problems in the world and, the fall, and even false teaching assaulting the church, and I think we ought to, and I think we ought to resist it wherever we can and should, but let us learn today to do so with an unshaken faith and confidence in our God. The word but at the beginning of verse 19 I think is huge. Maybe your translation says nevertheless. I love this. It's like this, this is happening but God, right? But God's up to something or but God's firm foundation stands. It's as though Paul is saying in spite of all of this, in spite of all the false teaching that these men are perpetrating and the damaging effects it's having on some, God's immovable foundation is unshaken. That's what it means. So here's what we need to do. We need to unpack two things. What is the foundation Paul's talking about? What is this foundation that, that stands? And then what is the seal that's inscribed? What's the seal that's, that's on the foundation with these two inscriptions? Okay? So let's jump into it, okay? And I want, listen, my desire, was, my desire is that you would be strengthened today that you'd be strengthened to fight the good fight, that you'd be strengthened to be a workman as you approach the scriptures, that you'd be strengthened to live for God's glory in a world that has gone mad. God wants to make you strong and courageous. He wants to, make you, he wants to fill you with faith and confidence on the path of following Christ. So let's look at this. But God's firm foundation Stands. Verse 19. Well, it's, we're looking at one verse today, so it's all verse 19. What is the foundation that is being talked about here? The word foundation often in the New Testament refers to Christ. Okay? The church is built on the rock, which is Christ, and the truth of Christ. I think here the metaphor is used in a different way. I think it refers not to part of the building, but to the entire building founded and established by God. I believe that here the foundation is speaking of the household of God, founded and established by God, which consists of all who have true faith in Christ. Because notice what he's contra- notice what came before and what comes after. He's contrasting it with the faith of some that's been overthrown by false teaching. And after this, the, the seal, which we're going to look at in a bit, describes those who the Lord knows and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from evil. So I think the, the foundation here is the church. Of course, I don't mean everyone who just claims to be a Christian. And I don't mean the church as an institution or as a building, but all who have true and real faith in Christ. Here's why. Because real faith, and this is what we need to get today, part of what we need to get today. Real faith, true faith, faith that comes from God as a gift cannot be overthrown. It's a gift of God. It's a divine gift. Paul's confidence is that though the faith of some is and will be upset or overthrown by false teaching, God's foundation, the true church, is unmoved, immovable. Because real faith 
True faith, faith that comes from God as a gift, cannot falter. It's not that it will not, because you're so strong and determined. It's that it cannot, because it's a divine gift from God. Listen to Psalm 125.1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. God's, found, God's foundation is firm. God's foundation is immovable. Now notice it also says that God's firm foundation stands. God's firm foundation stands. The word stands here means to cause to stand or to sustain and uphold. In other words, it's kind of more of a passive word that something else is causing this foundation to stand. Of course, it's not you and I. The foundation stands because whose foundation is it? It's God's firm foundation. That's why it stands. That's why it stands strong. The firm foundation is the church that Christ is building. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 16 about his church? He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God makes, it, God makes this foundation stand secure and immovable. And beloved, this is what we need to live with confidence in this world. This is what we need to live with confidence. I was talking with someone recently, and um, how did, I can't remember how the this, this subject came up, but, but as, we're, as we're visiting a little bit, this person was talking about faith and their faith, and, and, and as we're talking, we both kind of came to the same conclusion. Our faith cannot be in our faith. The strength of our faith is in the object of our faith, which is God. So often people are looking for a feeling of faith rather than turning away from themselves and facing the God who is almighty and all-powerful and trusting in him. So we need to see things clearly in terms of the real danger in the world and false teachers and false teaching and the real danger and damaging effects of false teaching we need to see this. We need to see what's going on in our world with eyes wide open, with no sugarcoating. And then we need to speak and live with the confidence Paul had. But God's firm foundation stands. Think about this. Those of us who have faith in Christ, I mean true faith, living faith, real faith, are part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, although everything else will be shaken, right? Hebrews 12, 27 and 28. You and I, through faith in Christ, if we are in Christ, we are part of a house made not with human hands, but by the hands of God, eternal in the heavens. 2 Corinthians 5, 1. You and I are part of a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11, verse 10. We are those of whom it is said, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6. We are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. We are the household of God. 1 Timothy three fifteen. We are the living stones being built together by God 
into a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2.5. Man-made churches built with man-made ideas, fed with man-made doctrines, will crumble and be overthrown. They will. In this life, certainly in the judgment. But the true church of Jesus Christ, built by Christ, nourished in the, word, in the truth of God's word, is indestructible, immovable, because Christ himself is at work building it. Think about that this morning. What is Christ doing this morning? In thousands of places around the world, he is building his church. Christ is present here this morning, building his church. Right? It's not just, I hope you know it's not just you guys out there and me up here. We would be screwed if that was the case, right? What hope is there in that? Christ is here building his church. Amen. We praise him for that. God's firm foundation stands. Notice that there is a seal on the foundation. God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Of course, a seal is a mark of ownership or a stamp of authenticity. It's a mark revealing the foundation, which is the true church, belongs to Christ. We are His. Revelation chapter 7 uses this word seal. Verse 3, it says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. It's a mark of ownership. At the end of Revelation 22, in the new heavens and the new earth, verse 4 says, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is the seal of God. This is the mark of God saying, you are mine. Saying to his church, you are mine. This is my church. The seal has an inscription and notice there are two things that are inscribed on the seal. First, something Christ does and second, something we must do. The first is a promise from Christ, and the second is a duty for us. So the first is a promise. Look at, look at what it says. It says, the Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows those who are, who are His. In other words, the Lord knows who truly belongs to Him. Of course, this is not merely talking about God taking in knowledge or information or even of what certain persons will do in the future, like so-and-so will believe and so-and-so will do this or that. Of course, God knows all of that. This is an active knowing. It's a verb. It's not God taking in knowledge. It's God knowing actively people. There's something precious here and glorious God knowing certain people and bringing them into relationship with himself. The Lord knows those who are his. This is the Lord knowing in a loving and saving way. 
you want to know what this means in its most glorious, I think, courage-producing sense, it's in the words of Christ himself in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Jesus says, almost the same language. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is a knowing that is far more than God's omniscience, that God knows everything. This is an intimate knowledge, a saving knowledge, a loving knowledge that Christ has for his sheep. Christ knowing us, I don't know if you notice this in John 10, 14 and 15, but Christ knowing us is based on the deepest love and compassion for us that can only be compared with the love and knowledge that the Father and the Son have had for all eternity. You know what this means? In the most profound way, if, you were, if, if somebody were to ask you or if you were to ask yourself or if you were to ask somebody else, how long has Christ known and loved me? If you are a believer in Christ, forever, for all eternity. Continuing this theme later in John 10, Jesus says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you see that, that firm commitment of Christ for his people? He knows who are his. He knows who belongs to him. Here's the dynamic between the Father and the Son. The Father gives the sheep to the Son. Jesus, the Son, knows his sheep and calls his sheep and they follow him and they are eternally safe because the good shepherd died to bring them and keep them and he will keep them to the very end. This is precious beyond measure. The issue fundamentally is not whether you say you know Christ. I mean, I think that's important. I think that's good to talk about. The fundamental issue is, does Christ know you in this way? <clears throat> Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. He said, on that day, many will say, and this is, a, quite frankly, a false teacher's. He says, many, on, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare, this is Christ speaking, he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker, workers of lawlessness. But if Christ says, I know you, you are happily safe forever. And no one will snatch you out of his hands, including yourself. <laughs> Praise God. Because if, if that could happen, I'm sure I would do it. The Father knows and gives a 
people to the Son, the Son knows and dies for the sheep. And I love Ephesians 1, just to bring the Holy Spirit in, into this too, right? We got the Father and the Son. To bring the Holy Spirit in, it says that we have been sealed or given the mark of eternal ownership by the promised Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Spirit. So the inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, means the Father chooses, decides he wants to save. He gives them to the Son. The Son sheds his blood to purchase and redeem them and will not lose one of them. And the Holy Spirit is given to seal and protect these people eternally. The Lord knows those who are his. George Whitfield nails it, nailed it, he's dead. He nailed it when he said this. He knows, what does it mean that the Lord knows those who are his? Here's what he said, he knows their number. He knows their names. He knows every one for whom he died. And if there is one missing for whom Christ died, God the Father would send him back down from heaven to fetch him. He knows his saints. He is acquainted with all their trials sorrows and temptations. He bottles up all their tears. He knows their inward corruptions, temptations and sin. He knows all their wanderings and he takes care to fetch them back. Christ knows those who belong to him. If you belong to the Lord, this is meant to deepen your joy in God. It's not meant mainly. I understand there might be questions that pop up. What about this? What about that? I get it. But that's not, shouldn't be the main thing that this should bring you deep consolation and comfort. That if you belong to Christ, you will belong to him a year from now and 10 years from now and a million years from now. This is meant to deepen your love for God and your commitment to God because it assures you of the covenantal love and commitment he has for you. We love because he first loved us. The second thing inscribed on the seal is a solemn duty. A solemn duty. We, we, we move from a stupendous promise to a solemn duty. Those who take comfort from the promise that the Lord knows who belongs to him must take responsible, responsibility for this duty. We must take responsibility for this duty. In fact, the proof on the ground that you belong to the Lord, the proof on the ground that others can see as well, right, not perfectly, but the proof that you belong to the Lord on the ground is that you take this responsibility seriously. Not as a means of salvation, but as evidence that you actually are saved. Look at the second inscription. Here's what it says. So the Lord knows who are his, those who are, who are his. The second, the solemn duty is this. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Depart from sin. The one who names the name of the Lord, you know what that means? It means one who says, the Lord has sealed me. He has marked me. I belong to him. Okay, praise God. Then may your life in public and private be marked by a pursuit of holiness. 
a pursuit of holiness, not a kind of pass, passive let, let, let go and let God, but a pursuit of what pleases the Lord, departing from iniquity. Pursue sanctification, the writer of Hebrews says, without which no one will see the Lord. I love how these two things are brought together. The promise of God to lovingly save and keep his own is set side by side with the commandment for us to live in a manner worthy of this Lord. It's like this. God, by an act of sheer grace, brings us into his family and says, you're mine. You're mine. I've redeemed you. I've marked you. You're my beloved son, my beloved daughter. I've put my name on you. I've given you my name. I love you forever and I'll never stop loving you. And now he says, live as a beloved son or daughter. Depart from iniquity. I love the clarity here. What's he saying? (laughs) It's pretty clear. Depart from sin. Don't justify it. Right? We have our ways of doing that. Gosh, it's always something I struggle with. I'm addicted. Depart from sin. Don't just feel bad about it. It's right to feel bad about sin, no doubt, right? We dishonor our father when we sin against him. It's good to feel bad about it, but don't just feel bad about it. Depart from it. Don't look at other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as that person or this person, or don't do that. Or this person made me. Well, you don't know what they did to me. Depart from iniquity. Depart from sin. The word depart here means to flee, means to shun, means to revolt against it. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't even want to be around it. We are to shun sin, flee from sin, revolt against, against sin. And you and I don't get to decide what's sinful and what's not. I'm amazed at how quickly, and I do this too. We decide how holy we are by looking into our own hearts and pronouncing ourselves holy. And I mean, we're righteous in Christ, okay? We're clothed with his righteousness. But, but, but sanctification is an ongoing process. And that's what I'm talking about here. We, we're, we're to look at God, what he says, what, what he says pleases him and dishonors him. James says we are to look into the perfect law of liberty, God's word, being not a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. So if you are deeply comforted, and I hope that you are, by the statement the Lord knows those who are his. Then give yourself with wholehearted zeal to live as someone who 
knows the Lord and who the Lord knows. As someone who has the mark of the Lord on him or her. Run from sin. Revolt against sin. The Father calls you to this, right? Christ died to free you so that you can do this. The Holy Spirit indwells you to empower you for this revolt. Ephesians 1.3 says, The Father chose you before the foundation of the world. To what end? To be holy and blameless before him. Titus 2.14 says, Christ, the Son, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Redeemed from lawlessness, redeemed for good works. Paul says in Romans 12.9, to abhor what is evil, not just to... Not just to call evil maybe, God, maybe not the best, but to hate it. That's what Proverbs teaches us. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I was stunned, all right? So, <clears throat> Super Bowl Sunday. Um, we have just a few people over, Jody and Brandon, and, and we're watching the Super Bowl. It comes to halftime, and the halftime show. Okay, is anyone like 35 or older here? Could you, okay, if you are, I mean, and maybe no one listened to that music. I, okay, in my heathen days, I did, okay. But we got Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Eminem doing the, the halftime show. 30, that would have been unthinkable when I was 10 or 12 or 14. These, listen, I hope they, I hope they meet Christ, but these vile men and their vile music, and the vile entertainment. We have the idea of departing or hating evil is lost on us. And unfortunately, I see on Twitter some people praising the halftime show, people that I think, you know better than that. It's wicked. Don't think, well, the Lord saved me, and he's going to keep me saved, and so I don't need to take holiness seriously. You know what that is? That's irreverent babble. That's what it is. It's deadly dangerous. Paul said that God chose you to be the first fruits to be God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose you to be saved through sanctification or on the path of or by means of sanctification. In other words, there, there is no path to heaven that is not walking on the path of holiness and sanctification. And of course, listen, we're all a work in progress. But we're either on that path, the Lord knows us and we're on that path or we're not on that path and the Lord does not know us. For true Christians, God saves us through sanctification. So depart from iniquity. And this has to be said, okay? Because this is what's in context here, actually. One of the things that must be departed from is false teaching. Is errant, irreverent babble. 
Be done entertaining strange doctrines. Be done entertaining idle, irreverent babble and the people who bring it. Be done. Depart from it. Revolt against it. A couple weeks ago, um, after church, someone came to me and, and, a, and a song came to their mind. And uh, it was a, it's a song, Rise Up, O Men of God, I think, Rise Up, O Church of God. There's different versions of it, I suppose. And uh, I thought it was fitting for this morning. The first verse says this, Rise Up, O Church of God, have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength to serve the King of Kings. Amen? God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Do you name the name of the Lord? Amen. If you are in Christ, he knows you. More important than you knowing him, he knows you. And if his name is on your lips, you say, I belong to him. Then with his strength and by his grace, put to death sin. Depart from sin. Revolt against it in all of its forms for his glory. Amen. Let's pray.